Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Robbie Earle played over 600 professional football matches, scoring over 150 goals in a 20-year career, and he was a member of the legendary Wimbledon FC crazy gang, captaining the team and eventually being named the Wimbledon Player of the Decade in 2000. Although in England, Robbie was eligible to play for the Jamaica national team, where he captained the squad for two years, earning 33 caps and scoring the nation's first ever World Cup final goal in France 1998. Since retiring from the game, Robbie has established himself as a broadcaster working in print, radio and TV with companies like BBC, Sky Sports and ITV in the UK. And in 2010, he moved to the US where he now works with NBC Sports on their coverage of the English Premier League, as well as moving into the world of business and sports marketing. In 1999, Earl was awarded an MBE and is also a member of the Football Hall of Fame and a patron of the show Racism, the Red Card campaign. That's quite a CV. Robbie Earl, since I grew up in the 1980s and followed you week in, week out, it is a particular uh-huh. uh, having you on the Sandro Forte podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've made a, a very old man very happy bringing up all those old memories and games and goals that uh, nobody I'm afraid who I live nearby knows anything about me. So, uh, as I say, it's made a, ve- a very old man very happy. Well, th- this uh, this podcast now reaches 32 countries and lots and lots and lots of people. So plenty more people are going to know about you as a uh-huh. result of as a result of this chat, Robbie. Let's start, if we may, then with the with the crazy gang, still yeah. renowned in English football, still talked about. Yeah. Can, can you tell those of our listeners that aren't as familiar with them as perhaps I am a bit more about that team and where the name comes from? Um, well, I joined the club in around 1990-91. The crazy gang had been going for many years way before I um, joined the football club. And, and it goes back to the Harry Bassett days as a manager in, in non-league. And such famous figures as uh, Wally Downs and Alan Cork and Laurie Sanchez and, and old names who came through the leagues playing a certain style of football with a certain attitude and a little bit of a chip on their shoulder and did the unique thing of going from the non-league, so where you're not a paid professional, through to the uh, top league in English football and then sort of crowning that off in 1989, just before I got to the football club, of going to the FA Cup and beating the mighty Liverpool at Wembley. Um, So the crazy gang were already always known as almost like this glorified pub team that people used to scratch their head and say, how can these these people be playing professional football and winning on such a stage? Um, And I have to admit, having joined uh, the football club and had the best 10 years of my life uh, playing for the football club, um, I started to understand more about it and more of what it meant to play for Wimbledon, but also what it meant to other people as well. Mm. So I um, 
I, I, this all resonates with me. You know, the, the names Vinnie Jones and Laurie Sanchez come flooding yeah. back. Of course, uh, we both know Stu Carsadine, for example. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it spanned an era. I, I suppose mm-hmm. the, the obvious question is, and I, and I think there are some analogies here, because I want to make those people who are listening aware of the fact this is, this is not a football chat. The reason I'm particularly interested no. in speaking to you, Robbie, is because there are yes. so many analogies in, uh-huh. uh, in, in business and success in life. Um, yes. So I suppose my question is, what was it that made that crazy gang, the crazy gang of, mm-hmm. of men, yeah. with, win games against the likes of Liverpool on the biggest yes. stages of them all? It's a really good question. And, and until I went to the football club, I, I didn't really understand it. Let's, let's just for a bit of history talk that I started my career at Stoke City as a junior, went to a club called Port Vale, which was a, a very small club at the time. I had a really good manager. We played good football. It, it was um, a, a lovely way of learning the game and me getting experience to move to Wimbledon. But then I, I sort of crash landed in, into Wimbledon in, 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 say, the early 90s. And I very soon understood that everything to do with Wimbledon was about the collective never about the individual. Everything to do with Wimbledon was about a hunger and a desire to go to the next step. And one of the things that was very com- was a common thread through the dressing room when I went in early were huge characters, massive personalities that you had to stand up to and, and hold your own. But the second thing, the biggest thing I found was hunger. Everybody who went to that football club, everybody in that dressing room was trying to prove a point most players who, who came to that football club were bought from a level below. So going to Wimbledon was an opportunity, was a chance to prove yourself and, and, and show what you could do. And when you start to put that in a collective, in a dressing room, in a, in a, in a squad, and go to big grounds where people are earning more money than you and more famous than you, but you can sort of put a, put a, a spoke in the works or poke them in the eye, as we used to, used to say, then that became very, very strong and, and very, very successful. And I realised very quickly that it was the unified strength of the group rather than any individual, which was the, the, the biggest thing about Wimbledon. And, and that's why, as I said before, Robbie, I'm particularly interested to chat to you because yeah. you've already said a few things there that uh, replicate almost identically to some of the things that we hear from you know, entrepreneurs, people who've overcome challenges in life. Yeah. And that's about, you know, passion, hunger, desire, vision, determination. Yes. But also that's, you know, other people call it a support network. But yes. or you're as, as only as strong as your weakest link. And Absolutely. In that amazing yes. side of the, of the 80s and 90s, because it was amazing for a very it long time. It was amazing side. And, and the other thing you have to have, Sandra, just slightly cutting in there, is that, at some point, you've got to have ability as well. When, when push comes to shove at Old Trafford after 60 minutes, when you play Man United and then you get the ball down, you've got to be able to play as well. And, and that was something that at times people never recognised. There were some good technical players within that group as well. Yes, we could fight. Yes, we had vision. Yes, we were hungry. Yes, we were desperate to prove a point. But when, when it mattered now in, in certain circumstances, we could also play as well. Mm. And you, of course, Robbie, were you know, leader of that, of that team, yeah. you know, as captain, mm-hmm. I, I would really be interested to know how you, you've already, you already mentioned big personalities in that dressing room. Yeah. How did you control them or lead them as captain and in particular withstand and endure the pressure that, yeah. that came with that identity of, a, of yeah. the team yeah. collective? 
It's a very, it's, it's a very good um, question, and and I'll sort of tell you a little story in terms of how I got the captaincy. So, when I first got to the club, I was 25 years of age, so I was reasonably mature. I, I, I'd learned, you know, my, my my way at Port Vale, so I wasn't a kid going in. And fortunately, after an early while, I, I was made vice captain to to um, John Fashionu. And then a couple of times, Fash got taken off games, and I was given the cap, the captain's armband, and I kind of was, you know, I was very proud and understand the responsibility. And I remember very quickly what one one day um, we were playing away at Norwich, and uh, I got a phone call. We're staying on overnight on a Friday. I got a phone call in my room. Uh, John Fashion, who was obviously in the penthouse up above me, I was in a little sort of rabbit hutch below, and he said, "Come up to the room, man. I want to have a little chat with you." So I went up to to chat with Fash. He sat me down, and and you know, in his big chair, and he had a big fire there, and you know, looked like Lord of the Manor. And he sort of gave me a little warning, and also um, a little praise in the same way. And he said to me, "I know you're vice captain, and I know you're desperate to run this club, but when it's your time, I will give you the armband." But don't ever try and get the armband before I'm ready to give it you. And I sort of sat there like a trembling kid and said, yes, Mr. Fashionew, I understand. And he said, there's a responsibility with this football club that goes with the captaincy. He said, make sure you're ready for it when I'm ready to give it you. And maybe 10 games later, I think he decided he was having a few problems with injuries. He wasn't playing regularly. And he sort of went to the manager and said, you know, it's time for Robbie to take over. And that was kind of me sort of being given the, the birth and, and also the responsibility of taking care and looking after what was, was the crazy gang. And many people who know English football from that time would, would often talk about the initiation. So when you join the football club, generally something was going to happen to you, whether it was there was a famous incident where Johnny Hartson joined us, big signing from West Ham United, came in his nice boss suit and everything to do his first press conference. The boy set his suit on fire and the fire brigade ended up coming and nearly burnt the dressing room down. Um, we've, we've had players. We had Michael Hughes came along in a bit in a, in a big Mercedes. The lads took his four wheels off his, off his car by the time he came home. When he came back from training, the, the wheels are off and he couldn't, he couldn't get home. I remember my first morning, we used to be on Wimbledon, Wimbledon Common. So we used to run through Wimbledon Common as a bit of a warm-up, two or three miles, get, get the blood flowing. And I run through the common, nothing's happened. I'm expecting something to go on. And you're walking past old ladies, mums with babies in the prams and all that stuff. And then we get to the farthest point away from the training ground when we're going to run back. And then all the boys jump on top of me strip me naked and I've got to run probably about a mile and a half back to the training ground <laughs> with nothing but a uh, traffic cone to cover my best parts. <laughs> now, I will say, obviously, it was a large traffic cone because I'm from Jamaican descent, but, yeah, traffic cone running a mile and a half back to the training ground. And and people always used to wonder, like, and say, did, did, you know, did people take that badly and they w- wondered the reasons why we did that. And this is quite an interesting and a very important part of what was Wimbledon. It was a way of saying to whoever came to that group, you're now one of us, we'll now treat you like one of us. So whether you were signed for £10 million at the time as a highest um, paid player, or you came as a 200,000 signing from lower league, you were one of us, you're part of us, we accept you. Now you accept what, what you know, your, your initiation. And, and it became a very important part. And it was something I made sure continued through, through my time as captain. But anybody who came to the football club had to go through something to say, OK, now you're one of us. Now we, 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 we've kind of put our mark on you. And, and, and I felt it was an important thing that 
that helped to bond us together, helped to, to kind of create the things that stories that we're still talking of now when we meet up, the boys met up a, a few months ago, and we're still talking about those stories now. Mm. I, I, it's, it's, I'm, I'm sure that's a couple of many, many stories. But uh, yeah. how do you, uh, well, you know, you're a, you're a pundit now, Robbie, so you are... Yeah. It's easy to have this conversation with you because, you know, your knowledge of the game is still very relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, So with that in mind, uh, here's a question. Do you think the crazy gang as it was then uh, could succeed in today's modern footballing world? Again, very good question. Um, I believe it would um, because it would have evolved. It might not have. People say we we used to push the rules. We, We would play mind games. We would be mentally strong we'd be physically strong we'd have a personality and character but again a couple of things maybe you you people wouldn't quite recognize about Wimbledon that they wouldn't understand when I went to Wimbledon we already had an athletic trainer way before anybody else in the league was doing that kind of thing everybody's now got fitness trainers things we had one in 1990 when nobody else was doing it Wimbledon were I would say the fittest team in, in, in the league we trained harder than most people thought, often had two sessions a day, often had a game plan and a certain way of playing. Now, some people say it was just banging the ball along and getting it as far as you can. There was a little bit more science and study to it that we'd work the ball into certain areas of the pitch. And when it gets into those area pitch, it was almost coordinated. It was almost a bit like NFL. Everybody knew where they were going to be, where my teammate was going to be, where the person next to you was going to be. And it was kind of rehearsed. And if we rehearsed that enough times on the training ground and did it enough times well on a Saturday or Sunday, we won matches. And so there was a lot more science and um, physicality and and understanding behind what Wimbledon put out on a Saturday. We used to sometimes make up that people, you know, the the press would do an interview on Thursday and say, oh, what have you done today? And we say, oh, we went to the pub this morning. The manager said, oh, let's have have a couple of drinks. It doesn't matter about training. And people used to buy all this stuff in and take it in. But deep down, we were working hard. We were understanding the opposition. We were knowing our own tactics. We were going through all the detail. And it would be that that would be, would stand us in good stead with today's football. Now, you can't, as back in the day, you could leave your first challenge on somebody and, and not get a yellow card. Nowadays, I'm sure we'd be having a lot more yellows and reds. But there were also clever enough people around the football club to, to have defi- defi- defined what we were doing and changed it a little bit so that it, it was, was still staying within the rules. Yeah, it would have been would have been very interesting watching you guys play. It'd be difficult to imagine you finishing the game with eleven men, yeah. uh, <laughs> based on the way you guys used to play. But um, you know, just changing the subject slightly, if I may, yeah. Rob, your your career was uh, cut short quite suddenly. So, uh, if yeah. you don't mind, tell us about that, and I think in particular how you transitioned mentally to life after football. Yeah, again, um, it was I was I'd had a, a couple of injury problems, and so I decided to go and play in a reserve game at Watford on a Wednesday night, uh, rather than being around the first team or being on the bench for the first team and not getting getting a run out. I just we just both felt it was better to go and get ninety minutes in the reserves, get my full fitness back, and then hopefully get back into the first team picture. Um, and then it was a bit of a freak accident actually, about ten or fifteen minutes into a reserve game at uh, Vicarage Road in Watford. I go and head a corner away, an opposition corner, head the ball away. There was a young goalkeeper in goal who was probably a little bit nervous of, you know, playing with the club captain in the reserves, came rushing out of his goal. 
after I'd headed the ball, we kind of collided and he landed with his knee in the middle of my stomach. I landed on my back. He landed on top of me and, and basically his knee sort of pierced um, through my stomach. And straight away, I knew something wasn't right. I had, a, I had a really bad feeling. I was sick on the pitch, which is something you never do. I managed to get to half time. And then during the half time, as we were sitting there, I said to the physio, you need to come over. And basically, you could see my stomach starting to almost grow like I was becoming pregnant. It just started to, to expand, uh, which we didn't know at the time was obviously an internal bleed, which is not a good thing to do. And I was rushed to Watford General, stayed in overnight. And then they found out in the morning, did some tests that I'd um, punctured my uh, pancreas which is not a good thing if you want to be a sportsman. It's not a good thing particularly anyway. And obviously I'd had uh, quite a lot of eight, eight pints of blood, internal bleeding. So I had to have a blood transfusion, the blood uh, taken out of my system. Obviously then I needed to get the pancreas repaired, which too probably I was in hospital for three months with the whole injury. Um, lost about three stone, which I didn't lo have to lose. So nearing on 40, 40 50 pounds. Um, and that really, in, in, in its entirety, was, was the injury. And after that, I was never really going to be able to get back to the levels of, of fitness that required. To be honest, I got back training. I could play the game and, and didn't feel too bad like in reserves. But the problem was every time I played, I needed three or four days to get over it. And in the life of a professional athlete, that's never going to be the case. So I had to call it a day. Um which was in some ways a really difficult decision because it's not of your own making. It's been forced on you. But then I, I sort of looked at it the other way and said, well, you know, that's it. I'm not the boxer who, you know, one more round or the, the player goes one more contract. I finished at the top. I finished, had a good career, 20, nearly 20 years professional. Um, I'd achieved most things I, I'd wanted to, to achieve, played international football. Um, played at the highest level, scored at most of the big grounds, etc. Um, so I, I very quickly decided I, I wasn't going to mope around. I was finishing my coaching badges at the time that I did. Uh, so I finished my A, li a license that gave me the opportunity to coach. I was involved in a little bit of media, was thinking um, and had a few opportunities to go into that. And I just pretty much felt as though it's time to move on. It's time to be an ex-footballer rather than just living in the world of football and not letting it go. And I felt it was also at 35, 36. It was a chance to have another career, to, to do other things that, that football had, had not allowed me because of the time and the pressures and the position you were in. Um, and so I moved it off into the media and what started as a six month sort of let's have a look at things turned into 10 years, which has turned into 16 years since I've now been here in, in the US. Mm. And you've I mean, you've created a name for yourself now as a as a very, very good pundit. But I am um, if I take you back to 2010, I think there was be fair to say there was some controversy around the World Cup. Um, yeah. Share, share that with us. Um, yeah, not, not a great time. Uh, it was a slightly difficult time. So it was one of those occasions when in the world of football, you, you, you always have to be, I think, a little bit careful about who you let into your inner circle, your inner sanctum, you know, you're a professional person. So I used to just have my own ways of saying, you know, very few people would ever come to the home. I always felt that was my own place. I never did too much publicly with, with magazines and, and shows and things. I always felt, I, I, you know, there was a private life that, that was family and, and good friends 
And I had a good friend who was in the inner circle who said to me, they were going down to South Africa. They're going to watch games. Can I get some tickets? And so I spoke to my um, employees then, was ITV, got tickets for a number of games that they said they were going down to as a group of guys and they were going to do the South African bit and the, and the safari and the, the wine and go to matches. And I, they got the tickets, which were all branded with my name across them. So, you know, for me to, to, to think of, of, of ever putting them on the market, while I'm not not the greatest uh, brain in the world. I'm certainly not foolish to think uh, tickets with your name and uh, branded all over them. But a friend who, who who I thought was a good friend sort of showed some mistrust, sold the tickets on to somebody who he didn't know, who sold them on to a third party. They ended up in the wrong hands of a um, group who were um, ambush marketing the beer down in, in um, the World Cup. So, and all of a sudden... I was down in South Africa for two days and, and then got a phone call, which had came from FIFA about um, they were unhappy with the tickets that had shown up, that the, there was people sort of brandishing a beer brand against, I think, um, Budweiser with the beer brand there. And there was all kind of stuff going on. And so I got a call from the head of sport. I had to go and see him. We had a conversation and he just said at this time, you know, we're going to have to let you go. Uh, it was seen as a serious um, incident. Reflected poorly on the company, and and um, in fairness, he handled it very well. I have to say, um, Nar Sloan, who was the head of sport there, and um, I was headed home. So instead of a uh, four-week jaunt over in South Africa, it ended up being a day trip, really, which is pretty far far to go. And I ask you that question, Robbie, because obviously a lot of people look at the life of a footballer, particularly somebody who's transitioned so successfully into punditry as you have. Yes. And they think, oh, it's, you know, it's just easy breezy. He's got, a, you know, a, a fairly straightforward life. Nothing ever goes wrong. But it, yeah. But in reality, it, it does. So I suppose my question is, how, how do you transition from, you know, the, those darker moments, the end of your career, the, mm. the t- issue at the World yeah. Cup? How, how does Robbie Earl stay positive through those, those bumps in the road? I think believing in, in yourself and, and staying focused on what you know and what you're looking to achieve. So when it was the end of, of, of the football career and there was some dark days in the hospital when wasn't too sure how things were going to turn out with the pancreas, etc. I, I started to say to myself, if ever I get out of, the, of, of, of this bed and, and, and are fit and able again, the little things in, the, in life are not going to worry me. The things that I can't control are not going to worry me. I'm going to be positive. I'm going to get on with things. I'm going to dedicate some of my life to, to, to helping others with a charity that I'm involved with. I'm, I'm going to try and do other things in my life. I want another career. I don't just want to be known as Robbie Earl, the ex-footballer, which I think is a slight slur on, on, on professional athletes because many have got more, more to offer than just their sport. Similarly, the disappointments over the World Cup. The people who knew me and, and know me, my, my close friends, know that that wouldn't have been me, but other people would have an opinion. So I've got to be strong. I've got to be focused. I've got to believe in, in what I believe. And, you know, fortunately, I got the chance to work with NBC. It was something we spoke about when I first went to them before I, I was employed by them. But they were very open. They they understood the situation and they said, you know, we're happy to, to give you the opportunity. And again, through that chance and opportunity, I've been able to work myself into um, a decent position over here in the US. So I think it, 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 it's much about that inner belief and, and, and staying true to who you are and not worrying too much of it that some people who don't know you will have an opinion that might be negative. Yeah. So you've mentioned the US. We're, here we are having a conversation whilst we're both in the US. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
what do, what do you i can't i can't uh let this this uh, conversation go without asking mm-hmm. life in the us uh yeah. how does the attitude towards success in the us yeah. differ from that in the uk robbie um, I would say it's one of the biggest things I've found moving to the US. And um, I'm never critical of, of either Britain or the US where, where I've, I've lived. What I would say in, in the UK is, is if you go to somebody with an idea, with a plan, with, with, with something you want to do, I would say 50% of the people you, meet, you, you talk to in the UK will go, hmm, I'm not sure of that. Can the, there's a slight negative first reaction even before the, the, the thought process has kicked in. Mm. What I would say in the US, 75 to 80% of those conversations start with a, wow, that, that's really interesting, or that's really good, or how could we make this work? Now, after that, there's a thought process, and not everything that, that is proposed comes to fruition. But I just say that there's a, there's a slight difference in attitude to success to opportunities to entrepreneurism to taking on another adventure and seeing how you how, how the journey goes and it's one of the things i particularly like about the us that it seems a bit more the glass is half full than the glass is half empty and that's very much ties in with the personality that i have that person i am um and, and so it's been great for me to, to work and now live in, in the US and um, be surrounded by people who are very open to, to, to looking at things and moving forward. I Kudos to you for, for re, really reinventing yourself after football, which I know a lot of mm-hmm. players do struggle with. You, you know, so now you're involved in business with a sports yeah. marketing agency and obviously exciting business projects. What do you, what do you like about your new world, Robbie, and, and what aspects from your experiences in football, do you take into that world? Um, it, it, again, very good question in terms of um, I've now got my own sort of sports marketing agency that's called Box to Box. That we have a US base primarily here in California where I live, and a UK base in London where my partner Robin Shelley lives. Now, Robin comes between the two countries probably every six weeks, and, and what we work is with. with uh, individual sports people, teams, brands, right, right holders, fashion brands, anybody who's looking to engage with, with football and, or sport and the sporting audience. And and what the position that, that we're in has been able to broker deals both sides of the pond. So there's a lot of American teams and, 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 and co- uh, companies who want to go into the UK. So all the NFL teams are over in the UK playing games now, the NBA, the basketball teams are there. Vice versa, all the Premier League teams and European teams, like so Dortmund and Bayern, the German teams and Spanish League, they're keen to grow in this market. And I think what, what I can take from football is sport's a very, very unique proposition in that the way it works, it's quite insular. The, 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 the language, the vocabulary that the sports people talk and understand is very different from business. So we've got a couple of fashion brands that we're working in the sporting space. And as much as as putting the deals together and working with the two clients, we become almost like the interpreter for, 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 for each, each party. So the sporting people will say, you know, 
this is how we work and these are the amount of days we can do, etc. The fashion brands will probably want, you know, 200 days a, a year in a contract, which is never going to happen. So we have to sort of be the mediator between the two and try and create the business that both parties can walk away happy with the deal. And, and we're finding some good success in that. We've got some really good, exciting projects. Just done a collaboration recently with Juventus and, and Police, the fashion brand that was just uh, a week or two ago, a, a unique collaboration of, of a one-off strip that was devised for a game. And it's got plenty of good press and we've got a couple more of those in the pipeline. So it, it's bringing together different different groups and trying to find that common ground and that common commonality and vocabulary so so both of the parties feel happy with the deal and, and are getting the most out of it and um by being both in the uk and the us i think it gives us a unique position because we kind of understand the characteristics of, of, of both the markets well i have to say it's an extraordinary story and uh for fear of repeating myself kudos to everything you've achieved how do you how do we find out more about you because there's going to be lots of people listening to this robbie who go yeah right i we've got to listen to this guy commentating mm -hmm. on nbc yeah. so uh website Any, social media anybody in the u anybody in the u.s can go to nbc sports um, or the nbc sports.com or nbc sports soccer websites where they'll see plenty of our work uh, social media, there's, uh, so there's myself, Robbie Earl, and there's another ex-English uh, professional, Robbie Musto, who works on the show. And we've sort of, on the back of the two Ronnies, now, are now called the two the two Robbies. <laughs> so with the two Robbies NBC, we have a Twitter feed. We we, we do quite a lot of, uh, of stuff on there. We analyse games. We give opinions. We, we talk about, obviously, all the, the, the subjects and storylines that are going on in the Premier League. Um, so, so through all social media, um, you know, people can can get to us there. Obviously, if, in, if you're in the US, you can watch the games. If you're not in the US, um, you can't watch the games unless you're watching them a little bit naughtily. So we won't talk any more about that. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm not going to ask you for your prediction for Premier League. <laughs> Uh, but um, I, I, I'm really hoping you might reassure me that the, the wheels are going to fall off Liverpool's uh, bandwagon. So uh, um, it's going to happen. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not. So I, maybe we have to skip this one or you're going to edit <laughs> the answer out. But I, I just feel as though for 18 months, uh, Liverpool have been playing title winning football. I mean, apart from City being ridiculously good last year, they want to win a title. Last season seems like a rehearsal that's now set them in good stead. And obviously, we're just coming after the weekend when Liverpool have beaten up um, City 3-1. There's a nine-point gap. It is not yet over. Last year, let's not forget that City crawled back a 10-point gap. But um, I just think there's a, there's a steeliness, there's a determination. There's a belief about Liverpool this time around that, that sets them a little bit different. And um, I will be very, very surprised if they're not celebrating their first Premier League title come next May. Yeah, that was not the answer I wanted to hear, but you're <laughs> right. Yeah. Finally, Robbie, uh, we asked yeah. our guests uh, one mm -hmm. question, and it's common to all of them. Uh, yeah. And you've already shared some some really amazing insights into your world. And I wish we could go on talking about this for a long time, but <laughs> we can't. You're a busy man, and... And yeah. we've, got to put, we've got to call a halt to this, unfortunately. But yes. in summary of everything you said, based on all the things that you now know, uh, yes. that, that great life and sporting experience, if a young Robbie Earl was asking his dad for some advice uh, yeah. for stepping out into the big wide world, one, what one single piece of advice would you give him that kind of stands out above any other? Again, tough questions, and, and there's no simple answer. I, 
from from myself in terms of my background, obviously being a young black player and coming up through the ranks and having some difficult moments with racers, Merley on, etc. My advice to, to, to a young 12-year-old self would, would be something around understanding and finding my difference. So, yes, sometimes you're going to be different, but being comfortable in that difference and sort of making the most of, of, of who you are. And, and that's something that I've, it's kind of stood with me from the colour I am. I'm a different colour than most people I grew up with. So that gives me an, an advantage because guess what? I get noticed. Mm. You know, the background maybe is a blue-collar worker from parents who, who were... Uh, my dad was a miner, my mum worked in a factory. But, you know, not not allowing that to, to in any way hold me back, to try and get a good education, to try and be a, a person who leaves an, a, a, an impression with someone. And a bit like where I live, and we've talked about the, the type of people I'm surrounded myself with, the glass is always football. The glass is always full in, in, in my, half full in my world. It's so, you know, I, I always want to look at the, the optimistic side. What can we do? Not what we can't do. Um, and, and I remember my father always saying to me at one point, when you walk into a room, people are always going to notice you. And what he always said is, make sure when you walk out, they always remember you. And that was something that always stood with me as though, okay, you, you, you've got an opportunity to leave an impression on people. And what I always felt and wanted to do was leave an impression. So people, when they said Robbie Earl, they say, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. Good, bad or indifferent, some people will, will have that, that opinion. But as long as they've, they've remembered you for some reason, then I think at least you've made a mark. Well, I do think you've made an impression on many, many people listening to this podcast. So I, I think you've uh, you've summarised it brilliantly and ended it really well. So all I can say to you, Robbie Earl, is thank you so much for finding the time in a very, very busy schedule to join us and to share your insights and your wisdom with so many people. I really, really do appreciate it on behalf of everyone listening. Pleasure, mate. Thank you. And thanks for bringing up some good old memories. <laughs> uh, equally, memories for me too. <laughs> Good to, good to speak to you and look forward to catching up with you soon. Yeah, thanks, Sandra. Well, that was the Sandro Forte podcast. And what can I say? That brought back lo lots of memories. Robbie Earl, what a, an amazing guest. Remember, there are many more fantastic guests like Robbie Earl joining me over the coming weeks. So please make sure you subscribe if you want to pick up some great tips on success. Remember, you can follow us on social media at Sandro's podcast. That's Sandro's with an S. Please remember that. Same on all channels. And we'd love to continue to hear your stories, ideas, challenges or whatever it is that motivates you. So keep the emails coming. Hello at sandrospodcast.com. And if you can, please leave a review on iTunes so we know what you'd like more of in the future. And don't forget to connect with me on social media, Sandro Forty on Twitter and LinkedIn, and The Real Sandro Forty on Instagram. Until this time next week, bye for now. <laughs>